I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis in order to increase understanding and awareness of the U.S. Constitution among the American people. And in this episode, we address the question of the Constitution and the administrative state. As a presidential candidate, Donald Trump ran on the platform of rolling back the administrative state. And since taking office, he has followed through on his promises, signing executive orders aimed at undoing previous executive orders issued by President Obama. What will be the impact of the president's regulatory agenda? And is it consistent with the Constitution? Joining us to discuss these important questions are two of America's leading scholars of administrative law. Daniel Hemmel is assistant professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School. His research focuses on taxation, risk regulation, and innovation law. He served as visiting counsel at the Joint Committee on Taxation and blogs at Take Care. And Karen Harned is executive director of the National Federation of Independent Business Small Business Legal Center, a post she's held since 2002. Before then, she was an attorney in Washington, D.C., and her organization, NFIB, was involved in litigation under the Affordable Care Act in the important and memorably named NFIB versus Sibelius, which all we the people listeners should uh, read and know about. And she's currently involved in, as an amicus in the NAM case uh, for the Supreme Court. Daniel, Karen, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for, ha- Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Well, Daniel, let's jump uh, right in and tell our listeners about uh, one of the major regulations that President Trump has uh, attempted to roll back, and these involve uh, protections for streams under the Clean Water Act. Tell us what uh, regulations the president has issued and whether or not you believe his his actions are legal. So the Clean Water Regulation was promulgated by the Obama administration in 2015 as an attempt to clarify what was uh, really really a swamp in uh, the wake of several Supreme Court opinions trying to interpret the phrase waters of the United States in the Clean Water Act. Under the Clean Water Act, uh, you can't discharge pollutants into waters of the United States uh, without a permit. And what, it, what are waters of the United States? Well, uh, they include territorial seas, they include interstate waterways, they include tributaries. Uh, Justice Kennedy suggested in a 2006 case, Rapinos versus United States, that they also include waters with a significant nexus uh, to those previously described jurisdictional waters. Um, but guidance from uh, the EPA and from the Army Corps of Engineers as uh, to what waterways do, what waters do have a significant nexus to jurisdictional waters uh, was notoriously unclear. In 2015, uh, the Obama administration made an effort at clarification um, and uh, asserted control over uh, waters that uh, previous administrations wouldn't have considered uh, to be within the waters of the United States. Um, President Trump described this as a massive power grab uh, and instructed uh, his EPA administrator uh, to roll back the regs. Uh, But that's going to be a a multi-month process that's uh, only now underway. So uh, we're not quite sure what the final output will be. Thank you so much for that. Karen, tell us uh, whether you think it's a good idea to issue this executive order about clean water and, and whether you think the president has the legal authority to do it. Right. Well, um, thanks again for having me, Jeff. I uh, We definitely um, believe that the, the president does have this legal authority. And I would say the main reason why is because, you know, much has been made about the use of executive orders um, over the past, you know, decade by presidents. And I do think when you look at the way that uh, President Trump has designed his executive orders, you see them um, really doing the right thing. And and this is a great example of this, staying in the balance of the statute um, and the law that, that guides him. What that executive order really does is 
signal his priority, a priority he set on the campaign trail, which was he wanted um, this rule that he thought was illegally promulgated rolled back. The executive order by fiat does not do that. It simply directs his um, administrator, VPA, and and the uh, Army Corps of Engineers to go back, look at the rule, um, you know, go through notice and comment, which is what they're doing to rescind it, and then replace it with something that he believes is more in line with what the plain language of the Clean Water Act requires, that the federal government has authority to regulate waters of the U.S. And what does that mean? Um, You know, this is where the professor and I will have a disagreement because we believe that um, waters of the U.S. means navigable waters and not um, a ditch that might fill for, you know, uh, 30 to 90 days out of the year because of a big rainfall, which is essentially what the Obama rule would have required. And in Trump's executive order, he points to an opinion, um, the Rapanos opinion, which the professor mentioned, um, but says that he wants to see EPA issue a rule that's more in line with Scalia's interpretation of what waters of the U.S. means. And we think that that is much more appropriate because that, A, um, honors the fact that really it's the states um, that have primary jurisdiction over over intra, definitely over intrastate lands and um, would restore that balance to the states, but also honor the language of the Clean Water Act and what it really means to be um, a water of the U.S. that's truly interstate. Thank you so much for that. So, Daniel, help our listeners understand the legal and constitutional framework under which the courts will evaluate this rollback. Uh, We have uh, heard a lot during the Gorsuch confirmation hearings about a case called Chevron. Tell us about that, how courts might use it to evaluate uh, President Trump's uh, rollback of EPA clean water rules and also uh, other EPA executive orders uh, working on uh, cleaning up Superfund sites and uh, involving regulation of the environment more generally. Great. So the 1984 case, Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, addressed the problem of ambiguous provisions in statutes. These are all over the place. Waters of the United States is a great example. Uh, The phrase is not self-defining. And Justice Stevens' idea in his Chevron opinion was, well, who's going to be better at resolving these ambiguities, courts or the agencies delegated with the task of administering those statutes? And he said the agencies, as a general matter, will be better at this. Uh, They're more uh, democratically accountable. They're more likely to be experts in the relevant field. And maybe one reason why Congress used ambiguous language was because it wanted the agency to flesh that language out. So Chevron prescribes a two-step process uh, for judicial review of agency interpretations of statutes. Step one, the court asks whether the statute speaks clearly to the question. If the statute is crystal clear, then the analysis ends there and the agency has to follow the statute. But a whole lot of cases, and I think those waters of the United States question uh, will likely be one of them. uh, The statute is ambiguous. There are multiple permissible readings of waters of the United States. Does waters of the United States just include a tributary to a river, or does it include the wetland around that tributary, pollution of which will still affect the river? Uh, And uh, the question at Chevron step two, so once the agency establishes that the uh, regulation is ambiguous, the court asks, is the agency's interpretation permissible? Uh, And as part of that, courts evaluate the reasonableness of the agency's view. Uh, I don't know whether the ultimate product of Trump's, the Trump administration's uh, clean water rule uh, will be permissible at step two. You've got to look at the regulation in order to to make that determination. Uh, I think the Obama administration's clean water rule uh, should have survived Chevron uh, analysis um, at Chevron step one, waters of the United States is ambiguous. Uh, And at step two, the Obama administration looked to Justice Kennedy's concurrence, which was the pivotal vote in Rapanos, and said, well, uh, 
Justice Kennedy has laid out the significant nexus standard. We're going to try to flex, flesh out that uh, uh, significant nexus standard on the basis of scientific evidence, exactly the sorts of field-specific expertise that the Chevron decision envisions uh, agencies using. Um, and the decision made a lot of sense. Uh, it was estimated to uh, generate uh, a little more than $400 million a year in costs and $500 million a year uh, in public health and other environmental uh, benefits. Thanks so much for that. Karen, you've testified about ending Chevron deference. You've said that Congress should end the so-called Chevron doctrine made up by the Supreme Court in the 1984 Chevron case. With Chevron overturned, federal agencies would no longer have the power to make up the law under the guise of interpreting ambiguous statutes and then enforce the law they made up through agency proceedings and in courts. Tell us why you think Chevron deference should be ended. And if it were ended, would that mean that courts would be more or likely or less likely to defer to President Trump's executive orders? Right. Well, yes, um, I, I um, very much have advocated for the end of Chevron deference. And, and the reason why is because it has really um, uh, been the chief culprit in um, in growing the administrative state at such a um, a, a uh, quick pace, if you will, um, because what we are seeing, and I think, again, with each administration, um, you see this more and more. They've known since Chevron was, uh, you know, adopted by the courts as a doctrine that the odds are in their favor that if they make it if it's complicated enough, the judges are not going to second guess them and just give them the authority they're asking for in whatever rulemaking um, they're putting forward. And so you really have seen this encroachment, and I would say it's by all administrations, quite frankly, um, of getting more and more power under the executive and less and less through uh, changes to the statutes um, and an open debate in Congress, or, um, you know, and even um, you, we would argue in the waters of the U.S., and the states definitely were arguing, taking power away from the states um, through regulation, knowing again that it's going to be a very light touch, a very light review um, by um, the judiciary, if at all the statute is deemed or the, the words that are being um, debated in that particular case, in this case, Waters of the U.S., from that statute are viewed at all as ambiguous. And I heard great remarks last week from Judge Kavanaugh out of the D.C. Circuit on this point, because what does ambiguous mean? To one judge, is 60% clarity enough for it to be um, not ambiguous? Or are they going to hold it to a 90% you know, degree of ambiguity or, or clarity for it to be considered ambiguous. I mean, where, where are we making that call, um, clarity versus ambiguity, I guess I'd say, 60% clear, 40% ambiguous, or vice versa. And and the question really is, um, you know, what, as a matter of fact, how does this play out? And what we are seeing, again, is when you go up against the, the um, agencies, and we've seen this through our years of work, your, your odds of, of winning are very low because of the Chevron um, deference doctrine. Really, there's already, you know, one, the scale is already tilted in favor of the government. So what we would see if Chevron were indeed rolled back is, I don't think that that would now mean that, you know, organizations like mine could go into court and automatically win against the agency. But I do, I would hope that we could have a new standard that would really require the judges to take a deeper dive into these questions um, and really um, look behind maybe more of what um, the agencies have done to make sure they're really acting within the statutes. And in the waters of the U.S., it's not even just a question of H uh, Chevron. I would also argue um, and in the statute, the waters of the U.S., I mean, I'm sorry, the Clean Water Act statute, I think there's a serious concern with that rulemaking on uh, their uh, failure to follow the Regulatory Flexibility Act and um, show and, and determine that that rule uh, significantly impacted a, a, a large number of small businesses, which we definitely have uh, believed was the case. So I think there were even more flaws beyond just a, a poor reading of the Clean Water Act and in, in how the Obama administration put forward that first Waters of the U.S. rule. 
Thanks so much for that. Uh, Daniel, I want our listeners to understand uh, the constitutional arguments for and against Chevron. On the interactive constitution, there is an explainer by Naomi Rao, who's recently been named by President Trump as administrative czar, or head of the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs. And Professor Rao says on the National Constitution Center's interactive constitution, which our, our listeners know is their homework for each episode, she says, widespread delegation to the executive has weakened Congress as an institution and made it difficult for Congress to check the executive. Non-delegation is a principle universally recognized as vital to the integrity and maintenance of the system of government ordained by the Constitution. Given the importance of non-delegation, courts should provide greater scrutiny of delegations of legislative power. Tell our listeners about the non-delegation doctrine, why the court backed away from it, and why you believe that despite it, uh, deference to administrative agencies is a good idea and, and, and uh, allowed or required by the Constitution. Uh Cass Sunstein says that the non-delegation doctrine uh, has had one good year uh, and now about 225 uh, bad years. Uh, in two cases in 1935, the Supreme Court struck down uh, New Deal legislation on the grounds that Congress had delegated legislative power to the executive. Since then, it said, as long as the legislature provides an intelligible principle uh, for the executive to act upon, uh, then the non-delegation doctrine has not been violated. And that seems to me uh, a perfectly sensible rule. Uh, the Constitution does, in Article One, vest the legislative power uh, in Congress, but that term is not self-defining. Uh, and we have to make these terms work in a complex modern society. And that means that when Congress writes a statute, it can't foresee every possible eventuality. Uh, if Congress did foresee every possible eventuality in the statute, then agencies would implement that and courts would apply that and we wouldn't have uh, these problems of statutory ambiguity. Uh, but we will inevitably have these problems of statutory ambiguity. Uh, and then the question is really uh, not, a, not whether Congress will decide the question. Congress, Congress has tried and it hasn't successfully spoken clearly. Uh, it's a question of whether the judiciary will uh, or whether the executive will. Uh, so the alternative uh, to Chevron is the judiciary trying to flesh out terms like waters of the United States, uh, terms like air pollutant in the Clean Air Act. Well, is carbon dioxide an air pollutant? I think there's a pretty good argument that it is. Um, is uh, a, a ditch that feeds into a tributary that feeds into the Mississippi River, uh, part of the waters of the United States. I think that there's a pretty good argument that it is, but I'd rather the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers answer that question uh, than have a court answer that question. Well, what's particularly interesting about uh, the Trump administration's approach here is prior presidencies have always been on the side of, we want the executive to answer these questions uh, not the judiciary. Um, the Reagan administration uh, pushed for the Chevron doctrine and then pushed the Chevron doctrine after the 1984 uh, decision. It was doing it largely in a deregulatory direction, uh, but it understood that there would be ambiguous provisions in statutes, and it's not at all inconsistent with our constitutional structure for the most democratic branch, for a branch uh, whose head is, is, is elected by the entire nation uh, to flesh that out. The Trump administration is the first administration we've seen since Chevron came down uh, that seems to be both denying this executive authority and trying to stock the, the bench with judges uh, who are going to arrogate more power to the judiciary and less uh, to the executive. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Karen, Daniel is suggesting that the Trump administration is unusual in arguing that judges rather than the executive should make these decisions, and indeed Professor Rao in her, inter in her interactive constitution essay says that the constitution provides for the essential and central role of Congress in a Republican form of government, even after the rise of the modern administrative state. If Chevron were overturned, would that mean that judges might then be more likely to second guess President Trump's uh, executive orders? And, and more broadly, if Chevron were overturned, what other aspects of the administrative state do you think might be unconstitutional? Right. Um, well, I, you know, um, if, if Chevron were overturned, you know, it's going to likely be replaced by something. And what that's going to be, I, I really don't know for sure. What it should be, 
under our constitutional system, um, in, in my opinion, is a situation where, um, you know, maybe some, we need to hold Congress more into account on this. Um, it is not the case, in my opinion, that Congress is, um, statutes are deemed ambiguous just because Congress couldn't foresee everything that could come down the pike later. I really believe if you look specific, especially at the big legislation of the last decade or so, you know, Dodd-Frank, Obamacare, um, and, and um, other big bills like that, um, those bills were drafted by Congress so that they could avoid the political accountability. And that to me is what is so broken about our system right now, because they are the place where we need to be debating this. They're the place where we have the elected representatives. I don't know that I particularly have the solution on how to force them to be accountable, but in the meantime, we have to understand that reality. And the answer cannot be then that we now put the power in a bunch of unelected bureaucrats to decide what the law means for all of us every day. Um, I, I think that there has to be enough checks and balances. I'm not saying that the agencies are always going to lose. I can't truthfully envision a situation where that would occur even with Chevron gone. I am just looking for a fairer system where we're having a more meaningful review of what the agencies are doing. Right now, I really feel in many courts with many judges, you're not getting that kind of review and the thumb is on the scale of the, of the executive before you even go in. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Daniel, uh, first, is the overturning of Chevron a, a real possibility? We know Justice Scalia was a fan of it and Justice Gorsuch is not, but could you imagine five votes for the overturning of Chevron? And if it were overturned, what, how much of the administrative state do you believe might be unconstitutional? And give our listeners a sense of the kind of uh, regulations and agencies that might be in, in, in question. I don't think that overturning the Chevron doctrine would render portions of the administrative state unconstitutional. Uh, the question is, we've got a statute, and someone's got to interpret the statute, and it's either going to be a judge or the executive, but we're not going to strike that. It's either going to be an unelected judge or an unelected bureaucrat who's accountable to an elected president. Uh, but we're not going to strike down the provision as unconstitutional. We'll just have uh, more judicial activism uh, in a world without Chevron. There are two ways that the Chevron Doctrine could go, uh, two ways that the Chevron Doctrine could be killed. One, there could be five votes on the Supreme Court uh, in or to overrule Chevron. I don't think that there are five votes uh, right now. I don't think there are even four votes right now, but I don't think Justice Kennedy, who cares about the real-world consequences of his decision, would be comfortable uh, with overruling Chevron and, as a result, paralyzing the administration uh, of federal law. The other way Chevron could go uh, would be for it to be overturned uh, by an act of Congress. Um, Congress could say, the Chevron decision, the Supreme Court assumed that when we were ambiguous, that was uh, because we wanted the agency to resolve those questions. Actually, we want the courts to resolve those questions. I think that is a move that Congress could legitimately make. Uh, there's majority support for that in the House of Representatives today. I don't think there's majority support in the Senate, and I definitely don't think there are 60 votes to do that uh, in the Senate. Uh, uh, the sort of bird's eye view of this, stepping back, the, the irony here uh, is we have a party that, for the first time in a long time, controls all three branches of government uh, uh, that is trying to uh, take away the uh, government's ability to do things. Right. It's um, uh, an act of self-abnegation by the Trump administration uh, to be populating the judiciary uh, with Chevron uh, non-believers. Um, and it's, it's disconcerting in that uh, not only do I think that this position is uh, normatively undesirable, but it could, it could really do lasting damage uh, to the administrative state long beyond Trump's four years. Thanks for that. Uh, Karen, uh, Daniel has mentioned uh, a bill to overturn Chevron in Congress, and there's a related bill proposed by Senator Rand Paul called the RAINS Act, R-E-I-N-S, the regulations from the executive in need of scrutiny 
Act, which would require Congress to review all existing regulations that surpass a $100 million threshold. Uh, tell us why you think that legislative overturning of Chevron and, and scrutiny of regulations would be a good idea, and, and if those acts passed, what would the consequences be for small business? Um, well, so I'll start with the second piece, which is for sm small businesses really are the part of the American economy that are most burdened by regulations. Study after study after sh study has shown that um, the small business community is disproportionately impacted by them. And that is not really surprising if you think about it, because if you've got 10 employees, um, it's unlikely you have a compliance officer on staff. It's unlikely um, you have anybody with, um, you know, uh, the um, expertise and time to go through all these regulations and know which ones impact their business and what they need to do. So it's often the small business owner that's doing that work and time is money and that's time that they could be spending running their business that they are, you know, our research has shown time and again, they're the ones that are trying to figure out, does this regulation apply to me? If it does, what do I need to do to comply with it? And so um, that is why the administrative state and the Chevron uh, doctrine has been so um, important to uh, in, in eliminating the Chevron doctrine has been so important to small business. As I mentioned earlier, um, the Chevron doctrine has just exacerbated um, the growth of the administrative state because um, it is it really says, um, you know, if an agency's done just enough to show that maybe they know what they're doing, the, the, the judges are going to defer to them. And um, I, I know that sounds harsh, but really when you see it, they the judges under Chevron, if they follow Chevron, they are just so unlikely to second guess an agency and the agencies know this. So they keep on pushing it and pushing it, pushing their authority. And as a result, they're the ones that are now making most of the laws in this country. You look at the um, you know, Affordable Care Act, you look at Dodd-Frank, really the laws where the rubber meets the road, the rules that everybody knows about and talks about and deals with are the ones that came out of the agencies not the ones that came out of the statutes from the account of, from the people that are closest to um, the voters from Congress. And so um, I think getting it back in the hands of Congress as much as possible, holding them to account, having them make the tough decisions. Sure, there are going to be um, technical issues that the agencies need to address. That's what the administrative state was originally created for. But we're long past that. We blew past that decades ago, I would argue. And we are now into a complete micromanagement of daily lives by regula regulatory officials that I just think is inappropriate beyond the bounds of what the statutes are saying and what the Constitution um, is allowing. And that is why, again, I am not, I would agree with Daniel that it is a question who gets to decide, the judges or the agencies. I ultimately think the judges need to be able to at least call it when it's gone too far and work on a, and on a standard that is fair to the regulated community and doesn't give um, the advantage to the agency before they even go in. So again, if Congress were to enact the types of reforms you just mentioned, we are at least, I think, getting us back to a system where um, those that are closest to the people that need to be hearing these debates um, are held more into political account. Because if the judges do go crazy and start, um, you know, uh, turning down all these regulations and, you know, as a result, we're seeing all sorts of ills occur in the society, um, which I question would happen to begin with. But should it, of course, Congress is going to stand up and step in. We've got to force the issue. And right now, we're giving Congress a pass through Chevron and through the administrative state. And I think it's completely inappropriate and um, makes it less transparent and less um, easy for the people I represent who don't have millions of dollars to roam the halls of um, agencies to know what the next regulation is coming out, for them to be able to make their case as to why a law or a new rule is going to help or hurt them. Thanks very much for that. All right, now let's put on the table another of President Trump's executive orders, and that's his recent order announcing that the government would end federal payments for cost-sharing reductions under the Affordable Care Act, which currently 
total about $7 billion a year. Daniel, you recently wrote a piece in the Washington Post saying that as a result, health insurance premiums are likely to skyrocket as a result of President Trump's announcement last week. Um, tell us uh, on, about the legal issues raised by the rollback. Um, Abby Gluck has uh, written that the rollback violates President Trump's constitutional obligations to take care that the laws be faithfully executed under Article 2 of the Constitution, which uh, she says means that the laws have to be implemented in good faith and executive discretion has to be used to enforce a law rather than to kill it. And then tell us about your proposed alternative, which is that you believe that states have a way to save the subsidies and restore order to the insurance markets. Great. So Section 1402 of the Affordable Care Act requires insurers that cover low-income individuals and families under silver plans to make reductions uh, to co-pays and deductibles to limit the out-of-pocket costs that those individuals and families bear. So if you're at the poverty line uh, and you enroll in a silver plan, uh, your co-pays and deductibles can't be more than 6%. Uh, of your total health care costs. Uh, if the insurers are reducing your co-pays and deductibles, well, they're losing money on that. And the idea of Section 1402 was that uh, the Department of Health and Human Services would pay them every time that they make a cost-sharing reduction. And Section 1402 says that the HHS secretary shall make periodic and timely payments to the health insurers. It's a legal requirement. Uh, now, the Affordable Care Act did not explicitly appropriate funds for those cost-sharing reduction payments, and Congress has refused to appropriate those funds. So HHS is told that it must make these payments, but it's not given the money to make those payments. Congress did appropriate funds for premium tax credits, uh, which are tax credits key to the price of the silver plans used to offset the costs of, of buying the plan for low and middle income uh, households. So the premium tax credits come in when you, when you buy the plan, when you pay the premium. The cost sharing reductions come in once you have the plan and are charged co-pays and deductibles. Uh, the Obama administration's position was that it could use the money appropriated for uh, the premium tax credits. Uh, to make the cost-sharing reduction payments to insurers. Um, I think that argument is right. Uh, it involves a lot of statutory cross-references that uh, I've, I've blogged about and will uh, spare you the details of uh, right now. Um, the consequence of the Trump administration cutting off these cost-sharing reduction payments uh, is that issuers of silver plans uh, are going to raise the price of those silver plans. Because uh, if they issue a silver plan to a lower middle income uh, household, then they're going to have to reduce copays and deductibles. They're going to have to outlay these costs, and they won't get immediately compensated uh, by HHS. They're going to raise the, uh, the raise the premiums, and as a result, uh, the federal government will end up spending more uh, because the premium tax credits, which are going to continue and which are key to silver plan premium prices. Uh, are going to rise. Uh, so actually by 2020, uh, the irony is Trump is trying to kill the Affordable Care Act with this, uh, and he will cause disruption for the next two years. By 2020, there will be a million more people insured because Trump stopped the cost-sharing reduction payments uh, than would otherwise be the case. Um, some people uh, are going to use this larger subsidy, which is key to the rising silver plan premium, uh, to buy uh, lower bronze plans uh, or higher uh, gold plans. Um, so that's that's the legal landscape and how this premium tax credit provision interacts uh, with Section 1402, the cost-sharing reductions uh, of the ACA. Uh, because the law says that HHS shall make these payments, that means that the insurers can sue and they will sue HHS for uh, these cost-sharing reduction subsidies, and they'll win. It's a pretty easy case. The statute requires HHS to make the payments. If HHS doesn't make the payments, then HHS is going to lose in the Court of Federal Claims, and ultimately the insurers are going to get paid, but there's going to be a time lag. And, and during that time lag, during that two-year period, people will 
pay more for health insurance and some will lose health insurance altogether. Probably a million people uh, will lose health insurance over the course of the next few years. So my proposal is states can come in and deal with this chaos by uh, filling in for uh, the cost sharing reduction payments that HHS should be making to the insurers. When they do that, uh, they will uh, step into the shoes through uh, the legal doctrine of subrogation of the insurers. They'll step into the shoes of the insurers and can sue HHS themselves. Uh, and HHS is ultimately going to have to reimburse the states. So this is an uh, uh, over the long term, no cost way uh, for the states to prop up their healthcare markets in the short term uh, while this all gets resolved. Um, but it's really the Trump administration cutting off its nose despite its face here. Uh, stopping the cost sharing reduction payments uh, is not going to kill Obamacare. It's just going to make it more expensive. Thanks very much for that. Karen, uh, this is complicated uh, stuff as a policy matter, but just focusing on the legal question, does the president have the legal authority to cut off these cost-sharing requirements under federal statutes and under the Constitution or not? Right. And on this, I should you know, note that I'll, um, although I rep, uh, I, I'm definitely speaking for myself on, on this issue because this is not one in which NFIB has weighed in, um, but um, just as a matter of law, you know, the Constitution gives the power of the purse to Congress. Again, um, the, the people have elected these representatives. They're the ones um, that are in charge of raising the taxes and spending the money according to um, uh, uh, Congress's powers under the Constitution. Um, the Constitution is clear. No money shall be drawn from the Treasury but in consequence of appropriations made by law. I appreciate um, uh, Daniel's point that the ACA um, says must um, provide these payments, but there is not a subsequent appropriation. And um, in my mind, uh, that is um, Obama's ig uh, ignoring that and allowing for the cost sharing and now um, was, was illegal and, and Trump is just correcting a wrong um, uh, that really was offensive under the Constitution. Once we have presidents that can come in and, you know, really step in the shoes of Congress, which is what I, I think was going on here, you're really threatening all of our liberties that this balance, the separation of powers that the Constitution provides between the branches of government, you're really putting them on shaky, shaky grounds. And um, for that reason, um, again, if there is an issue, um, it's it's for Congress to resolve. Um, I'm I'm curious, you know, the state the state solution that Daniel provides may be a way out. I don't I don't know enough about it to comment, but I do um, think that the second we're taking the power of the purse away from Congress, that's just you know another way to to more um, create a unitary state, if you will, and that is not what the founders envisioned, and and any um, movement in that direction is really something all of us as Americans need to be concerned about because it really, um, that separation of powers is critical for all of our individual liberties. And um, for that reason, I'm very I was very disturbed by what President Obama did and happy to see what President Trump did, again, speaking personally here. Thanks for that. Uh, Daniel, a beat on what listeners can expect in the future. In May, Politico reported that uh, President Trump's regulatory agenda includes a series of rollbacks, including uh, a directive on the rights of transgender students, uh, uh, limits on greenhouse gases from power plants, rules meant to prevent concentrated ownership of media companies, and also rules about the deferred deportation of the so-called dreamers. Uh, give us a sense of which of those regulations might be rolled back and, and broadly whether or not you think the rollbacks are legal and why. Well, some of them have already happened already. Uh, so to take the Dreamers example, um, the Trump administration has already said uh, it will stop granting deferred action status, which leads to work authorization for, uh, for a two-year period, um, starting in March of 2018 for uh, the so-called Dreamers. These are uh, people who came here as children before age 16, uh, have either graduated from high school or served in the military. Um, don't have a criminal record, uh, have contributed to society, are under 31, 
and want and want to be able to work uh, and want to be able to pay in and ultimately get uh, get money out of Social Security. Um, and the Obama administration recognized existing executive authority uh, to uh, to defer action, to defer deportation for these individuals, uh, and and to give them work authorization. Um, so 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 that's something that uh, that Trump has already done. Uh, he's he's suggested uh, that he might reconsider his view in March uh, if Congress doesn't act. Most of the other things that you've mentioned uh, are. Um, things that the Trump administration is going to have to go through a process called notice and comment uh, in order to achieve. Um, ultimately, a court might say that it has to go through notice and comment on uh, the repeal of uh, DACA, of deferred action for childhood arrivals as well. But there are some things that you mentioned there, uh, like the, the uh, Clean Power Plan, where it's very clear that the Trump administration has to go through this notice and comment process. And that notice and comment process is transparent. It begins with the agency proposing a rule, publishing it in the Federal Register, and then there's a period of 30 to 60 days when we as citizens can comment on that. Uh, and sometimes millions of people will comment on these rules. It's really easy to do. You just log on to regulations.gov uh, and comment. Uh, and the agency has to read those comments and then address them in a final rule that's also published in uh, the Federal Register. That process takes a while. If the agency fails to respond to uh, comments that people put forward, uh, then uh, its final action can be struck down uh, in court. Um, and so far, the Trump administration hasn't been able to get through uh, many of these rulemaking processes. Undoing the administrative state uh, will take time. Um, it's also a the existence of this notice and comment process is also a reminder of the fact that we think of these unelected bureaucrats who are distant in D.C. Um, it's actually uh, uh, quite easy to access uh, these decision makers. Um, you can just log on to a website and tell them what you think, and they have to, and they have to read it and uh, respond to it. Um, so ultimately, the notice and comment process uh, might be um, uh, the, the the friction that prevents the Trump administration from really uh, getting this uh, rollback rolling. Um, we'll uh, we'll wait and see. Thanks for that, uh, Karen. What uh, other Restrictions might the Trump administration face as it, face as it passes some of the regulations we've talked about. In uh, a 2015 opinion called Michigan versus the Environmental Protection Agency, Justice Scalia said that uh, the EPA had to consider the cost of its proposed rules and that no regulation is appropriate if it does significantly more harm than good. Uh, Daniel has argued in the New York Times that that decision might prevent President Trump from building a wall because uh, the costs don't outweigh the benefits. But might uh, decisions like that and other decisions by the Supreme Court constrain President Trump's regulatory rollback? Or do you think the president should basically have the power to roll back whatever executive regulations he likes? Well, um, look, I am uh, for deregulation, but I also am for it being done um, properly, done properly and through notice and comment and definitely taking costs and benefits into account. Um, I, Based on what the president has put forward so far and the regulations that he has identified um, to roll back, those are regulations that were going to impose tremendous costs on small business owners and other Americans. So I um, have to think that that analysis would be one um, that um, would would um, weigh in favor of, of deregulation. For example, the Clean Power Plan rule that um, Obama had promulgated that really would have um, uh, had the national government in charge, the EPA in charge of um, uh, energy for, for the whole country as far as how it was, um, what, you know, what coal plants could, could um, produce versus natural gas versus um, wind, um, et cetera and really have that as a national structure, if you will, of, of um, energy production across the country, it was going to, as President Obama had said, um, necessarily skyrocket um, electricity rates for all consumers. And when EPA did their cost benefit for that rule under Obama, they measured the costs in America 
with the benefits for not just America, but for the world. And we think that was completely inappropriate, that you need to, you know, have apples to apples comparisons here. And um, had you done um, just benefits to the U.S., you would have gotten a completely different cost-benefit calculation. But I actually am happy to let the chips fall where they may on these kinds of calculations. I want an honest accounting of cost benefit. I want an honest accounting of impact on small business. I want the agencies not to just do check the box reviews um, on these regulations that I believe that ultimately if that is done, you will see deregulate deregulatory efforts um, that the Trump administration has put forward succeed more often than not. Thanks so much for that. All right. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this fascinating debate. And uh, Daniel, the uh, first word is to you. And this is the question. Uh, Does the law and the Constitution allow President Trump to roll back President Obama's executive regulations or not? The law and the Constitution will allow the Trump administration to roll back some but not all of the Obama administration's actions. Uh, The Trump administration will have to give good reasons uh, for doing that. Uh, The Administrative Procedure Act, the Magna Carta of the administrative state, requires that agencies not act arbitrarily and capriciously. Uh, So ultimately, uh, the test of the Trump administration's deregulatory agenda uh, will be, and it will be in the courts, um, how good of an argument do they have for what they want to do? Um, I think the Clean Power Plan is an example where they really don't have a good argument uh, for what they want to do. This is something that uh, is going to cost businesses seven to nine billion dollars a year, uh, but it's going to save a lot of lives. It's going to save three thousand to seven thousand lives a year. It's going to protect uh, children against asthma. It's going to lead to hundred thousand fewer asthma attacks uh, each year. It's it's the kind of uh, action by uh, a technocratic bureaucratic state that we want. Uh, people who are experts on these issues uh, acting on our behalf to keep our air clean, to keep our water clean, to keep our food supply safe. Um, Ultimately, I think the Trump administration can, within the confines of the law and the Constitution, do a lot of damage uh, to the administrative state. And ultimately, uh, the the greatest check against the Trump administration uh, will be a democratic check, uh, not a judicial check. Unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, the Constitution does not require administrations uh, to implement good policy. And I think a lot of this rollback is bad policy, but it will ultimately be within the bounds of uh, the the statutes and the Constitution. And the question will be whether it's within the bounds of the American voters' tolerance. Thank you very much for that. Karen, last word to you. Do you believe that the laws and the Constitution allow President Trump to roll back President Obama's executive regulations or not? Actually, I don't believe they just allow it. I believe they, in many instances, require it. I believe that under Obama's administration, we saw a very aggressive administrative state, one that decided that they did have doctrines on the judicial doctrines on their their side that um, really meant that judges were not going to give uh, the rules they put forward the kind of scrutiny they deserved under the Constitution or the statutes that they um, were meant to implement. And as a result, I think with um, President Trump has already signaled that he's going to do it the right way. He's not doing it just by executive fiat. He is going through notice and comment rulemaking on um, these regulations where um, he's trying to unwind what uh, President Obama did. But I think ultimately he does have the Constitution and and or the statutes on his side when it comes to things like the Clean Power Plan, the Waters of the United States rule, and many other regulations issued during the Obama administration. I would note that during the Obama administration, when many of these rules came to court for challenge, it was unprecedented that we had at least three courts um, stop them from being, um, stop them from being, going into effect after that they were already promulgated, already issued by agencies, because those courts had such serious concerns about um, whether those rules actually followed the statutes they were meant to implement and or the Constitution. That is why I really think that Trump is going to have um, great success in his deregulatory efforts. And that success that the small business owners I represent are very much going to appreciate because regulations are so 
harmful to them and so costly to their ability to succeed in this country. Thank you so much, Karen Harned and Daniel Hemmel, for an illuminating, substantive, and uh, truly useful discussion of this complicated but very important topic about the future of the administrative state. Karen, Daniel, thank you so much for joining. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotz and produced by Nugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Nugana Etze. Here's the big ask for today's podcast. Please rate us on iTunes and other platforms. It helps other people learn about what we do so they can become constitutional learners as well. And please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast apps. So Live at America's Town Hall is the feed of all of our phenomenal traveling town hall debates. We've had such good ones recently in D.C. on the Carpenter digital privacy case. We're about to go to Chicago to debate the future of free speech. If you listen to Live at America's Town Hall, you can hear all of the Constitution Center's other great live constitutional content. Lawyers, alert! We're now offering CLE credit for Select America's Town Hall programs. You know how dull it is to watch those bad videos for CLE? Now you can watch great Constitution Center content and get credit for it at the same time. It's such a thrill, and it'll also help support the Constitution Center's work. So visit our website, click Debate and Upcoming Programs for more information, and stay tuned for on-demand courses as well. So that's a revenue opportunity to support the Constitution Center, but you all know the importance of philanthropic support because despite that congressional charter that now our listeners are reciting back to their professors uh, as a sign of their devotion to our catechism, we don't get any meaningful government support. We rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by this nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. So please consider becoming a member, signaling your devotion to this community of lifelong learning. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.